Please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. One benefit, I think, of singing out of the Trinity hymnal is you can mix and match lyrics and tunes. Um, and it's just a great way to be able to sing uh, rich tunes to more familiar hymns. So, Rob, thanks for that uh, great introduction on uh, that. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are not to live In fact, we cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Father, be pleased to feed your hungry people your truth. Grow us now, Father, through your word and by your spirit in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I don't know about geeking out on this text, but I will say um, there is a bit of familiarity um, with what is going on here. Um, With that said, uh, it was still a a tough passage for me to kind of see maybe what was going on and and why it's there. In fact, why is this in the Bible? Um, Is it to encourage people like Stan and me and Rex and even Dan on Lake Michigan, I believe, who have been to sea or those who may go on the Ohio River, is it, is it to give us some reference point? Um, why such a detailed travelogue, this diary? Why is, I mean, Luke has talked a lot about Paul's journeys, but not in this much detail. Why? Well, it must be important. The Old Testament of many Occasions that speaks of the word. I mean, go to Psalm 119, 176 verses, all but I think four directly speak of the word. And we've got that familiar verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So what is before us this morning is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And and we know Paul Toward the end of his ministry, he writes Timothy, his son in the faith, who would carry on what he had begun and says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This passage is profitable, is relevant. We don't make it profitable. I don't, I'm not ingenious enough to make it relevant. No, it is. It's our joy, though, to see its profitability, to to see its relevance. Here we are finishing up the book of Acts and Dennis Johnson in his commentary, Let's Study Acts, says this, of course God gave us the book of Acts to do more than satisfy our historical curiosity. Like all scripture, its purpose is to inform and deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Acts does this in a special way by letting us view how Jesus kept his promise to be with his church and build his church through the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, this is going to inform us, but by God's grace and the Holy Spirit's mysterious work, it will also transform us. 
Now, the last time we were in Acts a few weeks ago, we were setting sail for Rome. We looked at the first 12 verses. Uh, We saw that whereas Paul had faced many man-made obstacles, a mob attack or two, scourging at the hands of the Romans, plots at the hands of the Jews, attempted ambush, he's now going to face his greatest challenge, a storm at sea. Will the natural forces, so to speak, do what human opponents have been unable to do? That is to stop Paul, God's purposes for Paul to get to Rome. Well, if you've read all the way to the end of Acts already, you know that it won't. We saw the last time we were in Acts 27 that the presence of God with Paul was made known in at least three ways, the kindness of a non-believer, the centurion. A non-believer was kind to Paul. The encouragement of the church. Paul was able to go ashore in Sidon and, and meet with the church. No doubt they provided some things he needed, the companionship, the fellowship, the prayers. And then finally, we saw God's presence made known through the companionship of close friends. Just like Jesus had the multitude, he had the band of disciples, and he had the three close ones, a close companionship. We saw at the end of our message that God provides for us through his word and spirit and through people. He provides for us through unbelievers, through the church in general, and specifically, often, through the companionship of close friends. And as I thought about that more and reflected on that as we proceed into this new section, he provides for us supremely through Jesus Christ. There is no one kinder than Jesus. There is no one more encouraging than Jesus. And there is no one who is closer to the believer than their Savior. I want us to look at the title, The Calm in the Storm. I wrote and rewrote and wrote again the title. Uh, Sometimes the title comes easily. Sometimes it comes in difficulty. Uh, The content is important, but hopefully the title can serve as a a marker, an index, as it were, of of the content. And, and, And in the title, The Calm in the Storm, I think we're going to see an important key to the Christian life. And speaking of school getting ready to start, one key, a key to the Christian life is grammar. Grammar. We've talked about the mood of a verb, right? The indicative and the imperative. And if you get that backwards, your whole Christian life is messed up. But today we're going to see some parts of speech, in particular the preposition. What is it? Well, it's a word, almost always a small, common word that shows direction, location, or time, or introduces an object. It governs and expresses the relationship between words. Now, what is the best prepositional phrase in all of Scripture? What? Well, that's a conjunction. Um, But grammar, school for parents, yes. Um, In Christ. In Christ, Paul camps out in his letters, 
the doctrine of union with Christ. In Christ, it's the best prepositional phrase in all of Scripture. Not outside of Christ, not against Christ, not even for Christ. I'd say there are a lot of nice, kind unbelievers that may be for Christ, but they're not in Christ. And that's known between them and God. In Christ. Notice that this is not the calm before the storm. Isn't that a great expression? The calm before the storm. That's a pessimistic person, isn't it? Or somebody trying to make the best out of it now because bad stuff is coming. It's the calm before the storm. Or how about the calm after the storm? You know, like the storm is over. Now I can rest and relax and pick up all the pieces, right? No, not the calm before the storm, not the calm after the storm, but rather the calm in the storm. In the middle, side by side, simultaneous, both storm and stillness. With that said, our approach to the text will be simple and straightforward. First, we'll take a look at the storm at sea and then we'll consider the calm of Paul in the storm. A natural storm and a supernatural calm. Let's look at verses 13 through 20. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Let's start at the end with these words. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Gradually abandoned, some translations say, taken away, hope taking away, hope of rescue, hope of staying alive, hope of salvation. It's a desperate situation. There is real danger and there is real fear. Hope is being lost. And when hope is lost, the only thing that replaces it is despair. You want to give up. Years ago, a well-known pastor in the United States uh, responded to news of a Turkish earthquake with words to the effect of, when the earth shakes, where do you go? I mean, when the ground underneath your feet shakes, where do you find shelter? Where do you find stability? He was using that, of course, to say, hey, folks, uh, You need to be shaken up and find shelter and security in Jesus. Now, 
I don't know if any of you have been in an earthquake. I think we've all probably felt small little tremors here and there. Um, but I don't know how many of you have been in a storm at sea. Earthquakes are scary, no doubt. But when you're at sea in a boat on a ship and the sea is violently tossed, the waves and the wind, if you even get off the boat, you're still in the storm. There is nowhere to go. In the Navy, we are trained to fight fires because if your ship burns, you're kind of in a hard place. But you can generally fight it and you can generally get off the ship and survive. Even if an enemy attacks, most likely the entire ship is not destroyed. You're going to be able to find avenues of escape. Some people are going to live, some people aren't. But it's not going to be a total loss. But there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that's more frightening to a sailor than a storm at sea. You are at mercy of the wind and the waves. There's nothing you can do, but as we will see, of course, there's lots of things that the sailors tried to do. Now, how did they get there? Well, there was a window of opportunity, they thought, to weigh anchor and set sail for a better port to, to harbor for the winter. Paul had advised, don't do it. The majority of the crew said, no, we need to do it. And so they were going to go on a short, less than a day's journey, just kind of around the bend, up the coast, head to the harbor of Phoenix. It was going to be better. But if you heard what was read, and if you read earlier, you saw that soon a storm was raging and many human efforts that were taken were to no avail. The tempestuous wind, the Greek word is where we get the word typhoon and the northeaster is a combination of a Greek word and a Latin expression, a wind coming from the north. It's sudden, it's violent, and it's extremely dangerous. And even in the United States, you know, you watch the weather man, he talks about the nor'easter. Well, there in, in um, the Mediterranean, it had to do with low pressure systems and movement of air currents from the northeast to the southwest. And, 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 there, and the, the sailors feared this storm. And notice in verse 15, we were driven along. The sailors aren't in control of the boat. No, they, they have no option, but they have to let the boat, as it were, run with the wind away from land. Now, sailors love the wind. I mean, it's what sailors live for. But this is a situation where the wind is, is dangerous, if not deadly. And they feared that they would run aground, we read in verse 17, on the Syrtis, which are shallows and shifting sandbars off the coast of Libya. It's the Bermuda Triangle of the first century Mediterranean. It's a graveyard of ships. And so they are fearful that their ship, their boat, is going to be driven all the way to the coast of North Africa and pummeled against the shallows, the, the sandbars, and they will all die. The language Luke uses in verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed. Wouldn't you love a more detailed description? Violently storm-tossed. And then the classic Luke understatement in verse 20. No small tempest lay on us. No small tempest. 
He has to say it guided by the negative. He can't even describe how bad it is. He's just saying it's not very small. Now, as I was working on this, um, some of you may know what I'm talking about. Others of you may not. Um, But as I was reading these words, some other words were tumbling around in my mind. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. A tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. It continues, the weather started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. The minnow would be lost. Well, what we see in this passage, in this text, this true tale is many human efforts were taken. The crew tried to save the ship. We see the details of Luke, the eyewitness. The sailors are trained to sail the ship and trained to save the ship. And they, their efforts are proving futile. Notice there's at least five things they're doing. They secure the ship's boat, the lifeboat, the dinghy, what we would call the motor whaleboat that's used to get the crew on and off uh, from shore to ship. Um, They try to secure that. They bring it on board. Uh, They use supports to undergird the ship, we believe, and not a lot of information is known of these cables that would be put underneath the hull of the ship and actually sort of tie the ship together to prevent the planking from from, uh, coming apart. We see uh, they lowered the gear. Um, They're trying to, to, to make a drag on the ship to help it be stable in the midst of the violent seas and winds. Then they're going to jettison the cargo. They're going to lighten the ship because they think sort of oppositely that a lighter ship could also weather itself better and not be, um, uh, easy, uh, not be so uncontrollable. And then finally they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Now, to show you how desperate this is, you're throwing away the equipment that you need to operate the ship. They've given up. Uh, being able to operate the ship. They just want to save their lives. It's the the plumber who throws away his wrenches. It's the electrician who throws away his tools. It's the teacher who throws away the blackboard. It's the doctor who throws away the scalpel. It's the lawyer who throws away the books. You get the point, right? It's a desperate situation. All those human efforts, nothing makes a difference. Look at how it culminates again in the description. Look at verse 20 again. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, they're in darkness. They can't see the sun. They can't see the stars. For those of you familiar with navigation at sea, they cannot navigate. They are lost at sea. And we'll see later that this thing goes on for 14 days. Another 11 days. They have no idea where they were. They're lost at sea. Humanly speaking, there appeared to be no chance of survival. Before we move on, um, earlier in Acts, remember the jailer? 
who said to the apostles, what must I do to be saved, right? He was going to kill himself. Why? He'd failed at his job. He'd failed to do the right thing. He knew that his life was over. Brothers, what must I do to be saved? He was desperate. And we'll talk about this a bit further, but this really is a good picture of the desperation that any of us are in when it comes to recognizing our sin. And if our sin has not been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus, all hope, as it were, is lost. It's been abandoned. It's a good picture of the desperate condition of the heart of man apart from the new heart that comes through faith in Christ. More about that in a moment. So all hope might be at last abandoned as we read, but that doesn't mean that hope itself is gone. Because it's still here. Where can that hope be found? Let's pick up reading and consider the calm. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Paul is speaking while the wind is howling, the waves are breaking, and human strength is depleted. Now, verse 21, uh, some commentators think it's Paul's smug, I told you so. And it may be. After all, Paul is still a sinner. He's not yet glorified. There may be an element of, I told you so. However, other commentators believe what he's saying is, what I'm about to say, men, is going to be credible because what I said to you earlier was credible also. And the truth of our situation gives me credibility. Because, of course, Paul was operating not on divine revelation, but on just experience at sea as he had been there before. Because his previous warning was based on his own traveling experiences. He hadn't had a clear word from God. But that's changing, of course. Verse 22, I urge you to take heart Take heart. Again, the echo of Jesus in John 16, 33. Be of good cheer, as the King James says. Keep up your courage, as many others say as well. And we see where in verse 23, excuse me, 22, there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. And then down in Verse 24, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
um, we, we see that um, it's not directly there, but it's implied that Paul has, has prayed for his fellow travelers and God has heard and answered. And there's an interesting parallel here many have seen that, you remember when Abraham intercedes on behalf of, of the city and people of Sodom? Remember, if only so many righteous people are here, God, would you spare the city? And he keeps whittling it down. And, and, and God answered Abraham and, and say, it protected the city. Abraham's intercession, and many see Paul is doing somewhat of that as well. He's interceding on behalf of the entire 276. And they will all be saved. Now, in order for Paul to say to others, be of good cheer, uh, take heart, in order to say that, he himself has to already be of good cheer. You know how you say words, but your whole life betrays what you just said? Paul can only say, be of good cheer in integrity and honesty if he himself is of good cheer. Paul is calm, he's confident. Why? How? Now, in keeping with the nautical theme here, let me suggest four anchors that are found in what he says to the passengers and the crew. Four anchors. First, the anchor of God's presence. Paul knows who is with him. He knows who's with him. The angelic message was a confirmation of an earlier revelation in chapter 23 that Paul would get to Rome. He tells Timothy in his second letter, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Even though Paul wasn't there to hear the post-resurrection Jesus tell the 11 disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, him meeting Jesus, he knew that also, that Jesus would be with him. So there's an anchor, first of all, in God's presence. He knows God is with him. And look at the language. Um, there, this very night, they, there stood before me, with me, an angel of the Lord, a, a messenger, a representative. So the anchor of God's presence. But then there's the anchor of God's ownership. Paul knows to whom he belongs. When he speaks, he said, an angel of the God to whom I belong, to whom I belong. You see, Christians belong to God by both creation and redemption. All humanity belongs to God in one sense. Christians belong to God in another sense as well. He's their father. So, so we're, we're because... He, we belong to him because he bought us, of course, as Paul would write to the Corinthians. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. But I want to move beyond the abstract property. But how about the personal? Uh, we belong to God like a bride belongs to a bridegroom. John 3, 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The bridegroom has the bride. Jesus has his people. Jesus has his church. The church belongs to him as a bride belongs to a bridegroom. We belong to God like a child belongs to his father. 
Also in John, Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christians belong to God as a child belongs to a father. A Christian belongs to God like a sheep belongs to a shepherd. Remember Jesus' words, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There's great hymns in the Trinity hymnal. And another one that we could have sung is 129, I belong to Jesus. Here, verse one, I belong to Jesus. I am not my own. All I have and all I am shall be his alone. Verse five, I belong to Jesus. He will keep my soul when the deathly waters dark around, round about me roll. I belong to Jesus. If anything, reading Paul's statement that I, the God to whom I belong, should ask us to Paul's and say, do we belong to God? Do we belong to God? Like a bride belongs to a bridegroom, like a child belongs to their father, like a sheep belongs to to its shepherd. So the anchor of God's presence, the anchor of God's ownership, and then the anchor of the worship of God, or many translations, the service of God. See, Paul knows who he is and what he's been called to do. He knows that he's on a mission from God. He knows he's on a business trip for God. He's doing God's will. He's serving God, and, and ESV translated worshiping God, and both are good expressions. What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end, of course, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to, to worship God, to serve him, to fall down before him, to acknowledge him as Lord, to get our directions, our instructions from him, to give him the glory and praise, to worship him, to serve him. You know, our postcard, I think, has a great statement and a great question. To be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? And Luther was right when he says, whatever your heart clings to or confides in, that is your God. Paul says, the God whom I worship, the God whom I serve. And finally, the other anchor is the anchor of trust in God. He knows what is at the heart of true religion. He knows that the outward is important, but it's the inward reality that truly governs everything by faith. He trusted, he believed the revelation of God, the promise of God. He's heard it once, he's hearing it again. He's going to make it to Rome. He's calm. He's confident. Why? He trusts God. He believes the promises. Paul not only says to the whole church, we walk by faith. What does he say? We heard it earlier in the assurance of pardon. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. You know, these days, one big issue is identity. You know, like... Like identity. In older days, your identity was something kind of imposed on you, and now everybody wants to come up with their own identity, right? 
Who does Paul say he is? He says he's someone who's with the Lord, who, who is owned by God, who worships God, who's a servant of God, and he trusts in God. That's his identity. And he's sharing that with the crew and the passengers. When folks ask who you are, how do you describe yourself? What's most important? Where do you lead off? And the conclusion of Paul's message is this. There will be no loss of life, but only of property. Look at verse 24 again. It's a bonus. God's grace granted the lives of others along with Paul. You know, Abraham is called what? And he's blessed. Why? To be a blessing to others. Are we as a church, are we as Christians, blessings to the unbelieving world? Of course, we should look inward and be about loving one another. Yes, but are we also a blessing to those around us who do not yet know the Lord. God saves that entire crew physically because of Paul. Would God be pleased to use this church in how we live and what we say and what in how we display what's important to us? Would he be pleased to do that, use that to do good to others, to the ultimate good of them coming to faith in Jesus? The last time this word granted was used was when Governor Festus was considering granting a favor to the Jews in sending Paul to Jerusalem that would have led to his death. But here God's grace led to Paul's life and others be saved. Paul is calm in the storm. He knows who he is. He knows who's with him. He knows who he belongs to. He knows what his business is. And fundamentally, he rests in the faith that's been given to him. So I don't know what's going on in your life right now. You may be outwardly calm. Things look smooth and easy, but inwardly, it is a tumultuous storm, a violent storm of emotion, feeling, wrestling with what is true and what is not true. I don't know. But this question has got to be asked. What anchors hold you steady in the storms of life? You know, we just heard that our brother Paxton broke his Foot, and in his text, he said he was going to be on crutches and somewhat immobile. That's got to be discouraging. So what's going to hold him steady, confident, calm in the midst of this disruption? I don't know what's going on in your life, but what's your anchor? And notice in this story, it reminds us that for those who trust in Jesus, our life can never be taken from us. 
but our property may be taken from us. And as I thought about that, I mean, does that mean that in five years, you know, some, some government tax collector is going to come and take my property or somebody going to steal my property? I don't know. But I do know this. When we cross the threshold from life here on earth to life in the presence of God, guess how much of our property goes with us? You know the answer. Your life will be saved, but not the ship. And we will see that unfold. Well, Luke's detailed journey of the sea voyage shows God's sovereign purposes and underscores that God can be trusted to fulfill his promises, not only to Paul here in the first century, but to you and me now. God's promises can be trusted. Now, the historical details matter, but so do the principles illustrated. And here are a couple of things as we wrap up that I believe we as a church can take away from this text. And I believe this will help serve as an anchor to our ministry inward toward one another and outward to the community. Two things. First, the gospel, the message Remember Paul, his calling, chapter 20, verse 24. What's his calling? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's even testifying on the ship in the storm to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, this picture here is a great illustration of sin. You see, man really is in dire straits. He's desperate Apart from God's intervention, his life will be dashed on the rocks, as it were, of God's wrath. It's a great illustration of this, the bad news, but it's also a great illustration of the good news, salvation, rescue, the promise of God, the hope of the gospel, the sure and certain hope. And Paul would write about that over and over again in his letters, that we have a sure and certain hope. Peter would speak of an anchor for our souls. So this passage, this text, this narrative account really helps us better understand <coughs> excuse me, the gospel, the message of sin and salvation. And before I move on, let me just say this. Um, It's embarrassing sometimes to show that you're desperate. I think we have a natural tendency to want to portray to others that our life is in order, our life is under control, we're doing all the right things. My friends, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is for the desperate. For the people who have come to the end of their human efforts, is obedience to God's law important? Absolutely, absolutely. Is clinging to it as your hope of salvation dangerous? Absolutely. There's only safety and security in Jesus. Paul knows that and he writes about that explicitly in Philippians. But it's also a picture here of another man. It's a message, but also a man. And it's not Paul, but it's another man who's calm and confident 
so that we can trust him and we can get through with him in our trials. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The author to the Hebrews tells the readers then and us now to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Yes, in Gethsemane, Jesus asked if this cup could be taken from him and passed from him. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus went to the cross willingly, calmly. Why? He trusted his father. He knew that the purposes of God, his own purposes could not be thwarted. We really are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. There's no other way. No other way. Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. All these I have kept, he said. Okay, go sell everything, follow me. He went away sad. Jesus loved him, but he went away sad. Why? Because he didn't really obey fully, completely. We are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. No other way. And yet we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. In a mysterious way, his calmness and joy was there at the cross. As he entrusted his spirit to his father. My friends, in the storm of life, external, internal, whatever, we have the one who is calm in the storm, in the storm of receiving and bearing the wrath of God for us in our place and on our behalf. My friends, may the person and work of Jesus Christ anchor your life and may it anchor the life and ministry of this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Oh, Father, we thank you for this text which seems to be just a travelogue of an adventure at sea. But we see in your text, Father, the truth. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would continue to give us understanding of your word and application of your word. And Father, may we be a people living in this sinful and fallen world who aren't people who are sort of pessimistic saying this is the calm before the storm or really optimistic by saying, oh, the storm is over. It's the calm after the storm. But may we be a people who are calm in the storm because we belong to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.